Good afternoon. I hope everyone is doing well. We are going to continue looking at the Gospel of Luke in the section where Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, walking with his disciples, and he is talking about various topics. We have talked about prayer and distraction and mercy. And now, at this stop on the road, Jesus is going to talk about religion. And religion is, it can be, feels like sometimes a bad word in our culture. Like maybe somebody you know knows that you go to church and they start acting weird around you. Like when somebody finds out I'm a pastor, they might say something like, well, I know that you're super religious, but that's just not me. Or um, maybe you are the religious person in your family. It's like, oh, don't, don't say anything around her. She's super religious. You know, and, and, and I just want to like stop and like, like, hey, can we just like pause and parse this out a little bit? Because what, I, what you mean when you say religion and what I mean when I say I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't think those two things are the same. So when we talk about religion, we need to understand what is, um, what Jesus is talking about and what is just kind of dead ritual that Jesus rejects. Maybe you're thinking uh, this, this afternoon, you're thinking, hey, um, so we're going to talk about religious people. I don't really identify as a religious Person. I mean, I've read the New Testament. I know that Jesus often has conflict with the religious leaders. In fact, Jesus most often criticizes the people who are supposed to be the religious guys, but that's not me. Well, I think the spirit of the Pharisees is alive and well in our culture. The problem that the Pharisees had is the same problem that you and I have. The problem that they had was that they were driven and they were motivated by the need to perform, a need to be noticed, a craving for the applause of people, a focus not on who they were at their core, but how they were perceived by others. It was not simply enough to ask the question, am I doing okay? They needed to know, do you think I'm doing okay? And those are two very different questions. Author John Stark he argues that we live in an age of performative individualism. He says, we live as if the most important things about us should be performed before others, as if our deepest happiness will come from being who others think we ought to be. Later he writes, modern people reach for healing and gain a sense of self-worth through performance. He quotes Sophie Gilbert in The Atlantic who says, our performative culture tells us if people work to organize their lives to look just right, the rest will follow. Or we might simply say fake it until you make it. 
right? Can you perform? Can you appear a certain way? It doesn't really matter who you are at a heart level, at a core level. You just need to say the right things in front of the right people, act the right way to feel a sense of self-worth, that you feel like you're on the team. I've noticed when I go to the gym, which I tried, I tried to, that I've noticed a lot of people filming themselves lifting weights. <laughs> He's ever noticed this when you go to the gym? I, I try to I avoid people looking at me <laughs> when I'm in the gym. I'm like the opposite, like, please don't look at me. <laughs> but I just noticed so many people are filming themselves lifting weights. And I think, like, it's not enough for you to be buff. Like, you have to show the world how buff you are and how buff you're getting. And I think in all areas of life, we have that need, right? It's not just enough for me to do good. I need you to see me being good. It's not just enough for me to have a life with God, reading the scriptures and prayer in my room alone. I actually need you to know that I was in my room praying, reading the scriptures alone. It's not just enough to crush it at work and get that project, you just, I mean, you killed it. And you need that one person to know that you killed it on that project. We live in a performative culture. And that is what the Pharisees were. They were performers. So I think the spirit that they had is a spirit that we wrestle with. So the question for today is, what's the difference between dead religion and the full life that God has for you. How do we tell the difference between being a good church person that goes through the motions and having a real life with God? Let's see what Jesus says. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. So Jesus is talking to two groups. First, he's talking to the Pharisees. Later, he introduces the lawyers. The Pharisees were a sect of religious leaders who had an extensive oral tradition that they added onto the law. So they basically had the law in the Old Testament, and they created another law on top of the law. Then you had the lawyers. The lawyers were those people who tried to explain the law to people. So the law was so different, difficult, the traditions that they put on top of the law were so cumbersome that they had to have lawyers to explain it to people. So you have the Pharisees and you have the lawyers, two very respected groups in Jewish culture during the time. Verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that, he, that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. So washing your hands actually was not part of the Jewish law, but was actually part of the Pharisees' tradition. So the Pharisees looking at Jesus and he said, how dare you not follow our rules? But Jesus sees right through the question, looks directly into his heart and the hearts of all the Pharisees sitting around him and says this, Verse 39, now, the Pharisee, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, 
everything is clean for you. You begin to see Jesus' issue. There was a big difference between what these people presented on the outside and what was happening on the inside. You present yourself as God's representative. You're God's man. You're God's people. You're out here representing God to the, the people, but inside, under the hood, under the surface, you are filled with greed and moral corruption. And so Jesus is saying, listen, Pharisees, you've devoted all of this energy to giving these gifts so that you appear good before other people. What if you actually started paying attention, giving the same amount of energy, not to the externals, but to the internals? God made both the inside and the outside, and they go together, our heart and our actions. Let's not separate them. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe was an expression of regret. This is Jesus mourning and grieving over religion gone wrong. The Pharisees were such good rule followers, they were tithing their spice racks. I mean, it seems ridiculous to us. Like, not only am I going to give 10% of my income, but I'm going to open up my pantry. I'm like, here's 10% of the Cheerios. Here's 10% of the cinnamon. Here's 10% of the oatmeal. That is the level of detail, man. I am in it to that level. I dot every I. I cross every T. I follow every rule. And can you imagine if you were that type of person and you spent your life doing that type of rule following to have God look at you and say, hey, You've completely missed the point. You've missed the justice and the love of God. The problem is not necessarily what you're doing. The problem is that you're doing it for the wrong reasons because your heart loves the wrong things. And you're like, ouch. Well, he, that's only the first one. He's just getting started. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves. People walk over them without knowing it. You see, the Pharisees were those type of people who craved the applause of others. They relied upon it. They needed it. Instead of finding affirmation in God, they searched for it and everyone else, they loved it. When they walked into the marketplace and they heard people talking, oh, there's the Pharisees. There's that super holy, righteous guy. Look at the way he gives. Look at the way he prays. Look at the way he walks. Look at the way he fasts. He is that guy. And the Pharisees heard it and they kind of walked with their chest out. They craved it. You love the applause. Woe to you, Pharisees. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, and this is hilarious. Teacher, in saying these things, you also insult us. <laughs> so one lawyer is like, um, he's sitting at the table, and he's like, um, Jesus, I see that you're roasting um, the Pharisees, which, fine, but you seem to be offending us also. Verse 46, he said, and he said, woe to you lawyers also, <laughs> for you load, pe you load people with burdens hard to bear. 
You yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Oh, you love to dish it out, don't you? Oh, you love to lay the rules on everybody else, but you yourselves do not follow what you teach. You have no compassion for the burdens that you are crushing people with. Woe to you, for you build the tomb of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak many things about him, lying in wait to catch him in something he might say. You see, Jesus was a threat that had to be eliminated. Jesus was a threat to their way of life, their philosophy, their rules. Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching was undermining everything they held dear, so he had to go. Chapter 12, verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that, that were, they were trampling each other, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So for the rest of our time, I want to set up a contrast between real life with God and dead religion. How do we break from our performance-driven culture and experience the full life that God has for us? Well, first, we pursue heart transformation, not behavior modification. Jesus ends this very intense passage, right? That's a very intense one we just read. But he ends it with a very simple warning. He looks at his disciples and he says, guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Just like a little leaven spreads all throughout the dough, so hypocrisy can spread inside you. Don't give it an inch. Don't let it spread Beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And we all know what it's like to be a hypocrite, right? We've all been hypocrites from time to time, saying one thing and doing another. This word literally means playing a part, like an actor, putting on a mask, playing a part when you're on the stage and then stepping off the stage and being a different character. This is how Jesus summarizes dead religion. Their religion was a show. It was theater that fueled their sense of self-worth, but resulted in greed and corruption. They looked good on the outside. They were hollow on the inside. They could perform well before others, but they had no heart we get this in our culture, I think. We understand this dynamic. We don't always call it hypocrisy. We call it virtue signaling, don't we? This idea that I don't really care. 
I'm not really going to do anything, but I'm going to have the sticker. I'm going to have the sign in my window. I'm going to post it on social media, not because I really, like, I'm going to sacrifice anything to make these things happen, but I need to say the right thing in front of the right people, in front of the right crowd, so that they accept me, so they know that I'm part of the team. It's just like the Pharisees. My heart is motivated by greed and corruption, not love and grace and mercy, but I need to do the right things in front of the right people because I love it when they notice me. Their hearts were far from God. Pharisees were concerned with how a person appeared. Jesus is concerned with who a person is. Life with Jesus is about changing the heart, not simply changing our behavior. Now let me be clear, our behavior does change as we follow Jesus. It's not like it's all about belief, what you think in your head. No, our behavior change, changes, but that is a result of an inward change, a heart level change that transforms us so that we act differently. It's not just simply pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, doing better, trying harder, doing more. We've all tried that, it doesn't work. We need something deeper. The Pharisees said, to Jesus, you have to wash the outside if you want to be clean. Jesus looks back at them and says, you could wash the outside all day long and it would not clean up the mess of greed and selfishness in your heart. But if you could somehow get your heart clean, then everything else would be clean. Verse 41 says, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. If you really want to live a full life, we have to start giving out of the abundance of our hearts. You say, well, how does this work? Like, how do we experience this type of heart change? I don't want to just be doing all the externals. I don't want to clean the outside of the cup. I want a heart level change. How do we do that? Well, about a, a month ago, I got food poisoning. Anybody have food poisoning? It was the worst night of my entire life. It was horrible. I was so, so, so sick. In fact, I was just laying in my hallway and my wife had like walked by like three in the morning and she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I have no idea how I got here. I was sick. And I know the restaurant that I got it from. It was a restaurant in, our, in my neighborhood where I live that I've been really looking forward to it opening and I've been really excited about it. And it opened and I got really, really sick. Now, you don't need to tell me not to go to that restaurant. You don't have to make a rule and say, Logan, you know that restaurant's not good for you, don't go. No, I walk past that restaurant and my stomach begins to just tie up in knots. I am just sick at the, like looking at the sign makes me want to, you know, run the other way. But I know what a good meal feels like. I know what... A good steak tastes like, a meal that makes me feel good and satisfied, not sick. 
and know what it's like to feast. So you don't have to say, hey, Logan, why don't you take the steak and avoid the place that makes you sick? No, I have a natural distaste for it now. And in some ways, that's the way spiritual change happens. It's what one theologian calls the compulsive power of a new affection. Basically, the way it happens is Jesus fills up our hearts with his love. His love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and as he fills us up with his love, our loves begin to change. The things that we once loved, the things that we once thought would satisfy us, bring meaning and purpose to our lives, the things that we thought we needed, all of a sudden are like, I don't actually love those things anymore. I feel much more satisfied with the feast that God is giving. So as I'm filled up with God's love, it pushes out some of those other habits and loves that maybe weren't so good. The compulsive power of a new affection. Jesus changes what we love, what we value. He changes our appetites. We have a natural distaste for the things that harm us, those things that are sinful, the things that displease God, the things that we once loved. Like, that was me. I lived for it. Then you find yourself giving your life to Christ, and you're like, why? It's just not attractive to me anymore. Why? Compulsive power of a new affection. The love of God has just pushed it out. My old love for the approval of others, God's love just begins to push it out. My old love of being in control, God's love just begins to push it out. My old love of money, I just felt like I needed it to be secure. God's love begins to push it out because I find security in him. And that's the way heart change works. It's not like God zaps us and all of our desires that are wrong just go away. No, God pours out his love and his love pushes out those desires. And the more we have of God, the less we desire the other things. Second, not only do uh, we pursue heart transformation, but secondly, we live from acceptance, not for acceptance. We live from acceptance, not for acceptance. Notice that Jesus' whole message in this passage begins with the Pharisees correcting him about washing his hands. The Pharisees were very concerned about who was in and who was out. Who's on the team? Who's not on the team? Who's acceptable before God? Who's not acceptable before God? Who's accepted? Who's not? Who's in? Who's not in? That's what the Pharisees were all about. You follow the rules, you're in. You don't? You're out. The basic principle is so simple. Do the right things and you will be accepted. Do the wrong things, you're out. So they were like hawks looking for people to make a mistake so they knew what team they were on. This is how our performative culture works today. Say the right things, do the right things, appear the right way in front of the right people, and you're in. You're accepted. And that's exhausting. It's exhausting to live that way. Like we're at a a tryout and we never know if we make the team. It's like we're at an audition for a play and we actually never know if we made it in the show. We're always on tryout. 
We're always performing. We're always having to measure up to someone's standard, someone's approval. Am I in? Am I out? Am I okay? Do you think I'm okay? How do you perceive what I'm doing? Here's what's beautiful. If you guys just, you know, have been playing games on your phone, check in for like two minutes. This is just unbelievable. Jesus turned this performative model on its head. He frees us from this pressure to perform. The gospel says that God accepts you unconditionally based on his character and his work. Not on yours. The gospel tells us that we are acceptable before God, not because of our performance, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is revolutionary. It's like the show, The Voice. If you guys have seen the show, you have somebody on the stage and they're singing a song. You have four thrones, essentially, with the people's back towards the singer. And if the people like what they hear, they'll hit the red button, they'll turn around and say, you're on my team. What the gospel tells us is that God hits the red button even before we sang one note. You're in. You're accepted. You're on the team. Jesus has actually already performed, and he was perfect. He hit every single note, and now his perfection is credited to your account. So now we go and live as those who have already been accepted because of Christ, not trying always to gain acceptance by our performance. And that changes everything about the way that we live. This is why Christianity is about grace. There's nothing that I have done that could make God love me less. And there's nothing that I could do to make God love me more. Why? Because it's never been about you. It's always been about him. There's nothing you have done that can make God love you less. Hallelujah. Because we've made some bad decisions. Right? And there's nothing I could do to make God love me more. I could, be, I could have the best week of my life. God still loved me exactly the same. Because it never was based on my performance. He's already hit the red button. There's nothing left for you to prove. I was at a conference yesterday in Manhattan, and I was listening to a panel discussion with several pastors. And one of the pastors gave a great picture of this. He said, as a pastor, I struggle with the need to perform. Like I feel a sense of self-worth when I preach good sermons. When the church is growing and everything is going well, I feel good about myself. But when I preach the bad ones and the church is not doing well, I, just, I feel like trash. He said, I always actually want to pastor my church with the joy and the freedom of the 16th seed in the NCAA tournament. We're all like, what? He's like, yeah, like, you know, every year, um, the first seed plays a 16th seed, and the first seed uh, is supposed to blow them out, right? They're supposed to win by more than 20. It's supposed to be an easy win, no problems. But he says every year, there's at least one of those games at halftime where the number one seed is up by just a little bit. 
And he said, imagine that you're in both of those locker rooms. If you are in the one seeds locker room, everyone is stressed out. You guys better get it together. Put your stuff together. We have got to do this. We got to go out there and perform. If not, we're going to be an embarrassment. We got to get it done. You better get your act together. You go to the 16 seeds locker room, they're partying. It's like, you're down by five. We're just happy to be here. We're happy to be in the game. They're FaceTiming their moms, like, mom, look at me, NCAA tournament. There's like a joy and a freedom. The expectation is gone. One team is playing out of the joy of already being accepted. The other team is playing from the pressure of needing to perform. So the guy's like, I want to be like a 16 seed. Man, I'm happy to be on the team. I'm happy to be in the game. Are you living for acceptance or from acceptance? Do you feel the constant need to prove yourself? Or have you begun to rest in God's acceptance of you in Christ? Do you have the freedom and joy that comes from not always being on, on, in the tryout? Finally, we seek to know God, not just know about God. If there was one group that should have known God, it was the religious leaders. These were the professionals. These were the guys who knew all the scriptures. These were the guys who have memorized most of the Old Testament. These are the guys who knew chapter and verse. They could tell you the scriptures up and down, this way and that way. They knew it all, but they did not know God. Verse 52, woe to you lawyers. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you've hindered those who were entering. Though they had the key of knowledge, they never actually opened the door to real life with God. And worse than that, they prevented others from entering too. They had the key. They had the knowledge. They knew the scriptures, but they never actually took the key, put it in the door, opened it up, and experienced God. And this is such a problem for us. People who are in churches like this one and the one that I pastor. Man, I've grown up in this. I went to Sunday school. My grandma taught me this. I've learned all the stories. I know all the verses. I can answer all of your questions exactly in a way that would be satisfactory. But have you ever experienced God? Do you know about him or do you know him? The famous New England pastor, Jonathan Edwards, says this is like the difference between knowing intellectually that honey is sweet and tasting it for yourself. He said, um, you could read books all day long about honey. You could know about the honeycombs, you could know about the bees, you could uh, understand where honey comes from, how it's made, what's the process. You could know all of that stuff and you could come to the conclusion, honey is sweet. Or you could just take one drop and put it on your tongue and you would know it for yourself. The psalmist puts it so beautifully. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
Now I need to be clear. We value studying God's word. We value theology. We value knowing what is true about God. That is very important. It's just not enough. The mind and the heart go together. We want to know God's truth, and we want to experience God's presence. We want to know his goodness, his love, his grace, his power, his mercy, not as a hypothetical concept, but as a daily reality that we experience. The love of God in our bones. We carry it with us, not as an abstract theological construct that we read about in a book. If God is to us an abstract truth, we have missed it altogether because God is a person that we were designed to be in a relationship with, not a truth that we were meant to study. And I think the Pharisees and sometimes us, we have the key of knowledge. We know all the answers, but we just never put the key in the door. Open it up and walk through. So you're saying, okay, I get that. I want that. I want to know God in that way. I want to experience him. I want to know the taste of honey. How do I do that? Well, the message of Jesus is very simple. Most of the the time his message had two simple points. It was repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, repentance is coming home. We often hear that repentance means turning around, changing your mind, changing directions, and that is true. But it's not simply turning from what is bad. It is turning towards the good, which is God. It is not just saying, no, that's, that's not for me anymore. It's coming home. It's putting the key in the door, opening it up, and walking through. It's coming home Repentance, and then it's belief. Belief is about trust. It's, it's us actually leaning the weight of our lives on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Not simply saying, I believe it to be true intellectually, but I'm actually resting the weight of my life on him. It's like sitting in a chair. If there was a chair sitting here, I could walk around it. I could tell you why that chair would probably hold me up If I sat in it, I could shake it, could press on it. But if I really wanted to trust the chair, I would sit in it. So the gospel tells us not only come home, but sit down. Repentance and belief, come home and sit down. Rest the weight of your life, your eternity, Jesus and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've, been on the, I've been on the periphery a long time. I've kind of stayed on the outskirts of this whole Jesus thing. I've had one toe in the water. I've never jumped in. I've never sat down. I've looked at the chair a whole lot, but I've actually never rested the weight of my life on it. I've never let go of all the other things that I needed to feel secure and loved and accepted. I've never actually let those go and fully 
sat and believed that Jesus would hold me. So what if this afternoon on a rainy January day, God is calling you to come home and sit down finally in his love and mercy, salvation and grace? What if that's God's invitation to us today? Come home, sit down. Let's reject the dead religion of the Pharisees, the going through the motion and performing, proving ourselves. Let's leave that behind and come home and sit down in the love of God. Because that's why Jesus came, right? To reconnect us to our heavenly father. That's why he lived. He lived the perfect life on our behalf. He performed for us. He died to take the punishment of our sin. Then he rose from the dead in power. And when he did, something crazy happened. You see, the Pharisees eventually succeed in killing Jesus. Spoiler alert. What is foreshadowed in this passage? In just a few chapters from now, will come to pass. They will catch Jesus and they will kill him. But the irony of all ironies, in killing Jesus, they actually undermine their whole system. The old dead religion is dead. <laughs> Jesus took care of it. Jesus paid for it. And when he rose from the dead, he released a new power for new change at a heart level, not behavior modification, but the gospel of Jesus Christ in our heart, transforming us from the inside out, releasing us into the world as new creations. So let's say no to the small vision of Jesus where we do more and try harder. And let's embrace the bigger vision of Jesus who is the king of the universe, whose salvation is ours, who we were meant to know, not just know about, who fills us up with his spirit, not as a hypothetical truth, but as a daily lived reality. Let's do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We do want to come home, and we want to sit down. We want to know you. We want to trust you. We pray, Father, that this afternoon, you would show us where has the leaven of the Pharisees been growing in our hearts? Where have we been tempted to perform? And where do we need to stop and rest in your acceptance? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.